This is the seventh installment, and I can't tell you how excited, that's a word, or thrilled, or desirous I am to share wonderful memories, and even a few not-so-wonderful ones. You got to tell, talk the whole truth, you know, nothing but the truth. So, this is the seventh installment, and I've been, um, on some occasions, I've come with a smooth tale, and believe it or not, thousands, like I tell you, thousands of people come back to me to say, we enjoy your talking. Now, I have to accept the fact that I'm really telling you stories, so I'm a storyteller. And believe it or not, that's kind of what I do when I play this piano. Wherever the piano might be, whatever part of the world. The little piano, the big piano, the grand piano, nine foot piano, the, this thing called upright piano. I try to tell a story because I, I'm not a musician that knows music. I just know what I know. You know, I didn't go to the academy. I keep saying that. In fact, I have a tendency to forget that I may have told certain things before. So please excuse me if I repeat myself. But I didn't go to music school. You know why? I didn't want to go to school. I was a real rebel with a cause. I had a cause. My cause was to enjoy my youth, go hang out, go store the mango off the tree, and eat on that mango. And just be with my friends, would play little cricket, play little football. But my thing was this thing called piano was my passport to an to a enjoyable existence, to be with my friends, to be with a community of human beings called musicians. So in Jamaica, we had some incredible guys that play music, and they love this thing called jazz. But all music could be the music from Cuba, which you could pick up on the radio. Radio Havana, we heard it in Jamaica. Mambo, cha-cha, bachanga, all that music. So I just heard that, and then in my people home, my family home, we had all these records that came from America. You know, them days we say records. Records gone, right? Only time you hear about record is it's prison record. That's a record, right? But our time was records. You had the 78 record, that, and then you got the 33 and a third record. Spin on the record player. If you drop the 78 record, it break. Splinters, you know, shellac, they used to make it with. And then came the wonderful thing named cassette. Then they had, um, they had the 45s, and um, they tried to find better material. So. I heard all this music, the, the sweet songs that my folks would sing around the house. They heard Tony Bennett singing, Because of you, there's a song in my heart. That's Brock Tony. My mother was singing that in 1952 when I heard that. And lo and behold, decades, decades later, Mr. Tony Bennett himself called me on the phone to say, Marty, I want you to play my record. I said, Tony... This is the greatest honor, but I don't read any music. He said, you don't have to worry about reading music. You know Christmas songs, right? I said, yeah. You know Count Basie, right? I said, yes. He said, well, I want you to be Count Basie because I'm going to do a Christmas album of jazz swinging Christmas carols with the Count Basie Orchestra. So I became Count Basie because of the same man my mother was singing the song back in 1953, maybe it was. So I'm just about nine years old, just loving it. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, um, I'm trying to do a different approach where I cannot be a scattered, because scattering is real easy when you have the life I've had, coming from here to there, over here, hither and yon, back and forth, yeso, deso. Yes, 
you come from a place called Jamaica, which is a humble kind of existence compared to the European continent where people are in that world, you know, have kinds of knowledge about certain things. Jamaica dealing with the life of the islands, right? And um, so I was just, uh, okay, let me, let me back up here. I'm going to say the first days of me and my love of music and what happened. And this time around, I was just going to tell you, I am, I'm going to invite my co-pilot, my number one person, my friend, the one and only Katerina Maria Margarita Zapponi, Alexander. You know what that means, right? That, that's the peer, the peer, the two away. And I'm going to ask her to step in front of the camera and say quick hello, because she's going to prompt me and ask me to ask you or to tell you. Here she is, Miss Cat. Hello. This, this young lady had a big, I young... I think over here. Over there, Sit over down. Sit down. The YouTube people can't see us. Oh. Yes, if we're standing. So this young lady, Hi. who I met, would you believe it, years ago, years ago, we've been living the life, enjoying the up and the down, the coming and the going, the plane, the train, the bus, the songs, the third of songs, and this is my lovely cat. Yes, you it. And she make me remember things I forget. Hey, babe. Hey. Remind you know, me. We've been doing a lot of uh, interview watching. A lot of uh, Dick Cavett. So. Oh, yeah. We <laughs> like Dick Cavett. Uh -huh. And I have questions for you. Oh, you turn into yes. Dick Cavett now? Dick Cavett Or Johnny Carson. I'm going to go back on the other side because it's distracting okay. from here. So I will okay. be asking so. Miss Cat to, to remind me to remember and not forget. All right. Question number one. Shoot. I'm fascinated by the following thing. Yeah. When you were a little boy in Jamaica, Jamaica was under British rule. Well, I won't say rule, but influence, <laughs> yes. Okay. And it was one kind of national anthem, right? When you were a little boy yes. and they were playing. And then when you left, things oh, yeah. changed a bit. So I, I'm curious about that transition. I would transition. be delighted and glad to recall and remember what that was like. Yes. We grew up where uh, the school was very influenced by the British school system. You know, there were um, there was a level of uh, behavior that was very influenced by England, and the as is the case today in a probably a different way. The Queen, Queen Elizabeth, had been coronated and became the Queen of England. Her father had passed on, and now she was the root, the monarch. And there was an unspoken understanding that you would give res respect to this institution, the British crown, as we call it. So when we went to the um, movies, for example, you would hear... regard to being a part of what was called the, the, the British Commonwealth. We uh, played the game of cricket, which came 
specifically from England, it was a part of life, the culture. They would break at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Why? To have tea. Tea is the very proper thing. If you're in England, you're going to drink tea. Yeah, man, tea is the thing. Because it's a gentlemanly pursuit, you see? And um, as Amer America has a game called baseball, beloved baseball, you see the guy chewing the gum, the bubble gum. Yeah, you're on first base, I'm on third base, you're home run, all that. Cricketers had this period, white suit, and you're very proper. And it became the game to be played in all the British Commonwealth. It was India, Pakistan, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. It was a world game. It's still on fire, meaning all over those countries, when cricket is being played, everything stopped. Just like World Series here. Okay. So then, I remember going to, we call it pictures, and I'm sitting in the movie theater, and I used to go to all the theaters because I love the movies. The movies is what gave me dreams to dream even more about being away from home, which was great. But as you see in the movies, you see life in America, you see life in, in, in England, you hear, you know, you see the bad guys, the guns and the whole thing. But um, I remember once I went to the theater, the movie theater, pictures. They had the Carib Theater, the Palace Theater, the Gated Theater, the Regal Theater, the Odeon Theater. They had the Globe Theater. And all these theaters, a lot of them were open air. The roof was gone because, hey, you're sitting in the movie theater, you look up and you say two palm tree and a mango tree and a breadfruit tree, and you say, that, that's cool, hey, unless rain comes, right? So that's what was my life as a kid, going to the movies. And I remember, whereas the case, the screen, the curtain would open and you heard, and everybody stand up and say, God save our gracious queen, long live our noble queen, God save our queen, and the rest of it, right? The one day I was stand up, the curtain opened, and I hear a man in the row behind me say, no man, we're not going to stand up to that, that's all. What? What was that about? And I heard it and I sense a, a tone of disgruntlement. And that's just when the British were saying, we're going to depart, leave you folks to run your own business. And the word independence is what we experienced. We experienced independence. That was the beginning. And the, the first Prime Minister of Jamaica. And uh, we had Prime Minister Hugh Shearer. And then we had you know, Mac, Mac, Michael Manley came a little after that. And Jamaica became a place in it. And the anthem of Jamaica was no longer God save the Queen. Bishop Sherlock, I think he wrote the words, and a man I got to know, the Honorable Robert Lightbourne. And Robert Lightbourne used to come to visit his friend, who was a previous but uh, chief minister of Jamaica, Sir Alexander Bustamante. And I used to hear the piano from my house. And my mother would knock on the gate and say, Can Monty come and watch? the man playing the piano. And I saw Mr. Robert Lightburn playing the piano. Long fingers, man, let me tell you, this guy was up and looked like spiders on the keys. He was awesome, and that inspired me. I want to play that piano, like that. So, little long-winded version <laughs> of telling you about early, the British and then independence, which came just about 1962. And that's the very year I came to a place called Miami, Florida. We lived on Miami Beach. A, a roaming the street kid there, just ripe for trouble, let me tell you. But the grace of God, I say, is what saved me from, uh, call it, the, the gutter. Yeah. And how about 
When did you first hear the anthem? You remember the new Jamaican anthem? I think um, before the independence actually came, where you heard that song I just played, there was a sense of like, we want to be our own people. This is previous to the music expressions that came out of Jamaica, where I was actually playing on the early recording sessions on several of them. And um, this is quite a while before Bob Marley erupted and right. brought that incredible message he had through the music and that made Jamaica a more well-known place in the, in the world. Whereas before that, it was a more innocent uh, feeling about Jamaica because we had the, the, the tourism in Jamaica and also, if you talk about music, the man that brought the music was none other than a man who is with us today. We pray and hope that he is okay in every way. The Honorable Dr. Harry Belafonte, a man of Jamaican heritage, came out of Harlem, and he stood strong with making people of color respectable to the, to the world at large. He, 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 he was the greatest fighter and he really is a beloved man, and I myself was so taken with him. I think I spoke about it before, my, my very mother had a crush on Harry, and so did a lot of the ladies of those years, and even now. And in fact, if we can pull up a song that I, me, oh, had, yeah. had a, a chance to vocalize, and would, would be an album at some point, which would be released, it's called Island in the Sun, just me, Monty, on my piano, and me Good. chirping a little bit. World premiere. World premiere to run it. This is my island in the sun Where my people have toiled since time begun I may sail on many a sea her shores will always be home to me. Oh, island in the sun, will to me by my father's hand. All my days I will sing in praise of your forest waters, your shining sand. When morning breaks the heaven on high, I lift my heavy load to the sky. Sun comes down with a burning glow that mingles my sweat with the earth below. Shining sand. 
on the piano is on it too. You know. <laughs> Even in the recording. I have to say, as probably a lot of people who didn't get a shave off or couldn't go to the barber, the haircut guy, the hair got long, long right? So this kind of hair, some people, yeah, man, the boy have good hair. Good hair, whatever that is. My hair grow quick. You know? So right about now, the hair is going all over the place. So it's, I realized it's a time to wear the hat, which I was never much of a hat wearer. So I'm putting on, this is my cap from school, Jamaica College. Yes, I went to one of those schools and called it college, but it was really like high school and very in the British system. If you did things that were not very good, um, you would get a piece of what call, what call it? Caning. Caning. <laughs> and the guy had a cane, a switch. And he said, Ben over Alexander, you did this sort of thing, and we're going to give you four shots of the cane. I said, all right. And he bent over, boss. He bent over, and he did, bat, 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 for them. And if you did something that was, I remember, Alexander, um, they made you write out the line, you know, when you did something that was not so good, right? So, um, and you would get six shots. Well, six shots is, you know, that was like a felony. The misdemeanor was the four, right? So that was something that they've outlawed in England now, but that was the British school system. So spare the rod, spoil the child, I used to say. Okay, so I remember these people on that wall and the piano lid are kind of remind us to me of the good life. Oh, the good life. Yes, it's been a good life so far. We hope for more. And this man, Satchmo, he was a real ambassador to all of us and to music and for America. He was the greatest ambassador, probably as great as the best diplomats who went to Russia and to Poland and all over the world. This man... Ambassador Satch, because he brought a message of goodwill, not to say that he's the most incredible trumpeter and a man with a spirit of joy. And I saw him, and we spoke about him before, so excuse me, but I can say that Satch will save me from a bad time. He himself, because when I went to Jamaica College, they said to me, Alexander, can you dance? This was what they called initiation. And, and I said, no, I ain't dancing. About that time, the guy had a, a ruler, and he said, but, but that, if you, I noticed he was hitting the other guys on their leg. So there were a bunch of the new boys at school. He said, what can you do? Can you sing? I said, well, not really. He said, I, but I saw a guy playing the piano. I said, I can play some piano. He said, get over there and play the piano. And I did my version of a song I saw in a movie, one of my favorite films called High Society, a song written by Cole Porter to talk about the Newport Jazz Festival. What is the Newport Jazz Festival? I have no idea. But there was in the state of Rhode Island. And the movies featuring Bing Crosby, Louis Armstrong, and a man I didn't know much about at that time, Mr. Frank Sinatra. And it ended up a few years later. I was playing for Mr. Sinatra. And I was with him on many, many occasions. He came to the club where I was playing on many occasions. And I got to be around him and his friends. They accepted me. I was a well-behaved young man. I mind my own business, but I was welcome in that crowd of people. And that was a kind of unique bunch of folks. Uh, through, through that crowd, I also met Quincy Jones and Count Basie, Eddie Lockjaw Davis, Marshall Royal. All the musicians that played in the Basie band would come to be around Sinatra and Basie. And, um, so anyhow, high society, the, the piano player got up and I went to the piano. I went, I did an impression of Satchmo. 
and the voice kept saying, Alexander, do your Louis Armstrong. And I did the gravel voice, and he said, wait a minute, the gravel voice is scary, man, but that's Satchmo, it made you laugh, right? Okay, so Satchmo was a great influence on me, and um, ask me a question. What? I wondered when you left and you saw Miami, and you talked about Harry Belafonte and rights, and um, human rights and civil rights, yes. and what, what did you see in 61, 62 in Miami? First of all, I'm fascinated by the clean streets of Miami Beach, these hotels, these architectural wonders, you know, various beautiful hotels with different designs. And the people that come from North, you know, Chicago and America, uh, New York to enjoy themselves, and a big, a big smelly smell there was capatone lotion because everybody's on the on the beach, right? So I'm feeling carefree and I'm walking the street, going here, going there, and I noticed when I went to other parts of the area there was this water fountain. And there was another water fountain, and underneath one of them it said whites. And another one it said colored. So I scratched my head, said, what's, what's that? What's this about whites and colored? And I realized this thing called prejudice, that all over the world is a part of existence. You have some prejudice about this, prejudice about that, because a person is different to another person, you're not welcome. Are you different, you're lower, you're lesser, well, I would dare say that Jamaica had a much more acceptable version of whatever prejudice was in Jamaica because people were from India, from China, from all over the world, right? And so many mixed races coming together in the spirit of one love. The motto of Jamaica is out of many one people, which is the motto in America, e pluribus unum, Latin out of many one people. So in my own family, there's beautiful uh, variety. Wondrous variety, if we can say. So I just observed that, but I noticed that there was some folks here, and they didn't mingle with those folks here. It was my joy and pleasure to spend time in what was called Liberty City, or Opalaka, or Overtown, where decidedly the community was African-American. And I'm in there playing piano, and I'm rocking and grooving with everybody, and I am just Monty Alexander, I'm over on the beach with the other guys, and they're, they're like me, I think. And one day I started getting gigs around Miami. But I noticed there was this scene in Miami where if you were of a certain ethnic group, you were treated less, less respect. And then when I met Cassius Clay, and what he was all about, that took it to another level, because here's a man that refused to be disrespected. Refused. He spoke out in a way and said, no, 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 you got to respect me. And that was something that we all, if you're even a musician, you're looking for respect because normally you might walk through the back door or the side door, but we want to go through the front door, just like everybody else, because we, we're artists, you know? So that was an original introduction to this great land that is not 100% perfect, okay? <laughs> Ask me again. So is this where you saw, where did you see Man with the Golden Arm, that film? I can't remember exactly, but if you talk about this thing called drugs, drugs was a scourge, still is, but I remember running up on this terrible thing called drugs right up front when I would be around some of these beautiful people that were 
musicians, right? Right there in Miami. And I remember going to somebody's house and they started passing stuff around. And I remember what my mother said, if I ever hear that you did that, I'll go and box you, we used to say, right? And indeed, I had my extra guard up. Nope, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. And when I went to the bathroom one time, there was a guy sitting on the toilet seat with a needle. Yep, I saw that. And not long after that, I went to the movies because I'm a big movie lover. And I saw a film called The Man with the Golden Arm with the great Frank Sinatra playing playing a guy who had a struggle with drugs, heroin addict. And that nailed it in the coffin, boy. I said, it was the most horrible thing to see somebody being controlled by another substance, you know, and, and you walk around like this. And you started seeing that it was a disease. You know, these movies uh, see about the, the, the zombies and they're looking like they're dead. Then that's a zombie. So I ran upon the drug uh, scourge and by the grace of God, I was spared from that terrible existence. And um, I saw a lot of friends fall victim to that, whether it was the coke or the heroin or the whatever it was, right? <laughs> and um, today we have a much cleaner environment among the artists. I'm happy to see, because part of education, or they say, no, you don't want to do that, you don't want to do that, you won't, you know. Nobody wants to be like, for example, Charlie Parker or Billy Holiday, these great, great artists who had a weakness for these substances. So, don't mean to sound like a, a lecturer here, but that's what drugs were. Like when I came to New York, same thing, but more of it. Please ask me another question. And then I love that story when you got to Vegas. It was like in the same year, 62 something. Yes, and, yes, and I, had a job, I had a job <laughs> in, a, in an area called Hollywood, Florida, at the Windsor Hotel. It was owned by a, a, an old time band leader named Art Mooney. And Art Mooney. Oh, that's Mr. Cuckoo saying, telling me I've been running my mouth for a half an hour already. <laughs> Hope I'm not boring you. But um, Art Mooney had a band back in the old days, and his big hit song was, I'm looking over a four-leaf clover. That was a big song, you know, and he saw me playing, and I was playing behind a belly dancer, folks. And the belly dancer, I remember her, she was a beautiful lady. I don't know where she was really from, but her name was Princess Naila. And Princess Naila was a very beautiful lady, and I'd be playing the piano. I'm looking at Princess Naila, and I'd, I remember, I'd, you know, I play it. I heard it in the movie. One of those movies when you saw the Arabian and, um, you know, songs that. Uh, Nat King Cole sang, Haji, 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 Baba. And I heard that Arabian strain. It was very moving, right? So, so anyhow, I'm doing my thing, and Art Mooney say, I want you to come to Reno, Nevada. I'm taking a big band there, and I want to feature you on the piano. Mind you, folks, I'm just 18 years young. Not too bright, but I was excited. I went back to my mother and said, Mom, Mr. Art Mooney, the famous band leader who owns this hotel in Hollywood, Florida, wants me to go to Reno to play in the band and feature me while I show up, I guess. And she said, no, I don't want you to go because you're going to get into trouble and bad people and blah, 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 that. I say, I'm praying. I said, no, 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 I'm getting on that plane. I'm bus, train, whatever it is. I'm going to Reno and live my life out and enjoy myself. Well, I went to Reno and played at the Mapes Hotel for six weeks. That was just down the hill from Lake Tahoe, where I already knew 
I had already met Jilly Rizzo and Frank Sinatra. I met him in Miami, and I knew that he had this hotel up there right near California, in Nevada. It was called the Calneva. And I remember going up in the snow to the hotel that was still functioning. I went to the hotel with my friend, the trombone player from the Art Mooney band, Lloyd Spoon. I'll never forget Lloyd. We became friends. We went up there, and I remember uh, Buddy Rich had a combo in the lounge. It was Buddy Rich. First time I saw this most incredible drummer. Wow. I mean, he was, everybody thought the world of this guy, who was like a whiz. He was like Usain Bolt on the drums, you know? And I remember for the first time seeing Harry Sweets Edison, the great trumpeter, a man I got to know, and we played music together a lot. We became very f big friends, you know? And Sinatra was in and around, and they were dealing with some issues that had to do with hmm, shady people, let's put it that way. So I'm in Reno, the job goes on for six weeks, and then I didn't have a job. But there was a guy that needed a bass player. They were looking for a bass player, and I said, me, I love my finger. They didn't know I played the bass. Well, I went and rented a bass from a pawn shop. Where's my bass? Over there. Out here. Oh, it's over there. No, no, that's not it. It's, it's outside somewhere. But, okay. So my electric bass, I, I knew what to do. And I played bass behind this singer at the Haraz Hotel. And um, that went on for a few weeks. That job ended. That job ended. I think it's in the other room. Okay. And, um... There was a singer that needed a piano player, Johnny Bashman, and it was at the Thunderbird Hotel, and that's where I went. And it's the second time when I was playing there that I saw Jilly and his dear friend, Mr. Frank Sinatra. And they saw me, and that's, that's, they approached me and said, Hey, kid, we want you to come to New York. And they sent me a ticket, and that's, that's what happened. I got the ticket on the plane, and I arrived in New York. The next night, I'm playing at this place called Jilly's. And... It was a very exciting time. I'm just going to show Where's you. Where's my gator story? Oh, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyhow, this was my one momento that came from Jamaica when I came to America. I had to take this with me. And I still have it. I got it in 1959. And I think I even told some of the story already. So please excuse me. And Mr. Jaco Pastores knew about this place and he wanted to buy it from me. But I didn't want to sell it to anyone. So I had my bass, and I would play this with a guy named Tony Martini at the Harris Hotel in Reno. But I go down to Thunderbird, and I met a musician named Gator Rivers. <laughs> Gator. And he was bass player, and he was playing at another hotel. We became friends. We were staying nearby the hotel in Rancho Vegas, I think. We get off the job 5 a.m., my job. He got off his job. 5 a.m. and he's playing with a review, Rhythm and Blues Review. This is 1963, early 63. He had blown a couple of fuses in his bass amp. And I remember he said, man, I gotta get, get some, my, my bass amp, it ain't working, I gotta get some fuses for the amp, you know. This is before transistors, mind you, I think, before. But he had the fuses. So I knew about a music store in a shopping center nearby where the Thunderbird Hotel was. And that morning, the following morning, we said, hey man, we can walk over to that store where I see they're selling a lot of music equipment, including amplifiers and record players and everything, right? So we walked over there, and um, 
I walked up to the door, and there was a very quiet. It was about 9 a.m., by the way, when nobody gone to sleep yet. And I opened the door. The door is wide open. I opened the door. There's nobody in the store. And, and I look around. There's no store people. They're all fast asleep, I guess. They're going to open up late. And I opened up the door, and I walked in, and I looked at the things, and I heard Gail. I said, hmm. Mm, they got all them guitars and basses and things. Mm, I get hey, Gator, no, no, we don't do that, please. <laughs> so, we leave. I, I talked to him about any of shenanigans, right? Because I always believe if you do something not lawful, you could get in trouble and they throw away the key. And I said, let's, let's forget about it. But before I did that, I went to the, the store next door, which was now open because the lady in the store... Uh, she's putting stuff away and opening it. She's going to open. I said, ma'am, I, I, I'm not sticking my nose in anybody's business, but the store next door is open. The door is open. And um, I, maybe you know the owner of the store. And the owner happened to be a, a musician, a very successful musician in Vegas. I forgot his name. And she said, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. She called him up on the phone and spoke to Mr. Mr. Jones, okay? Mr. Jones... Apparently, had his pajamas on, he jumped in the car and started driving towards the store to make sure it's okay and lock the door, right? Because the door is open. So I, I said, all right, Gail, I'll see you later. I'm leaving, going back to the hotel, and he walked one way, and I walked the other way. And, and, and I said, okay, see you later, Gail. Gail said, hey, man, see you later. So I started walking back to the hotel. I said, you know what? I'm going to turn around and hope that, that Gail not up to any mischief, right? Sure enough, I'm walking back, and then maybe I'd meet the man, you know, and he could say thank you and hello and all that. And um, sure enough, here come Gator. <laughs> Gator's up to no good. I said, I said, Gator, and all I know is Gator say, Gator look at me and say, hey man, you messed me up, man. <laughs> that's it, that's it. I said, Gator, don't you realize what happened back when Las Vegas? You're a black man, and I look like a Mexican. <laughs> We'd be dead. We'd be in jail before the night, co night come. Right? So I never forgot that story. And it's like, yes, it had a happy ending, but it could have been the other. In fact, the Mr. Uh, store owner, he was really uh, grateful to me, and he gave me a gift, a record player, where you could play the LP, and I carried that record player around, a portable with batteries, carried it around for a few years, playing my Nat King Cole records keeping myself happy with the music and so on and so forth. So the bass, I didn't I didn't play it today, but if you want to play that little Oh you gizmo. can show the, audi the audience. Oh, show, show the audience. Show the folks. The, this the is the a, a recording I did recently and the bass the bass part wasn't as good as so I wanted it to hold be. Hold it up and so I, I hold it up? Hold it up. The volume. Okay. Here. This is some blues, old time blues, Jamaica.
made music change in the late 50s and and the 60s because that's what became the sound. You didn't hear the upright bass, which had what we call the F holes in the bass, just like with a violin. Because when you play those notes, oxygen, air, comes out of the instrument. And that's a part of the sound and the texture and the feeling, and that's life. It's got life, oxygen, that we have to breathe, right? But what happened with the electric bass? It started to rely on electrical current. And if you had the right bass tone on it, then you hear that fat bottom. And that became the sound of rhythm and blues. If you heard one of my heroes who just left us, the great Little Richard. I love Little Richard. He said at the piano, he said, And he had James Brown singing with him and Jimi Hendrix playing the guitar and all these people. This was the instrument you heard. You heard this with Fats Domino. You heard that with Elvis Presley. And then when the Beatles came, that was it. A whole new dynamic where our music changed away from what it had been. The sweet tones, for the most part, had taken, been taken away with the electrical ones, you know? So, enough big talking from Monty Alexander. How about that story? <laughs> I love that story. Am I talking too much, folks? Hope not. Well, Monty's telling stories, remembrances, and uh, sometimes I get caught up with uh, being long-winded and... Um, can the water, please, Ms. Cat? So a little sip of water I drink to you folks. Cheers on this May 16th. And a good day, a beautiful day in New York City. We're under the lockdown and we need to be mindful. One more time I'm going to say thank you health workers for all that you're doing with people who are not doing so well. Doing your very best, putting your lives on the line. And we're grateful to you. Thank you so much. God bless you. And now, I'm going to tell you about my first album. <laughs> See all these things on the wall? On the wall are, I don't know, about 30 of the 75 albums I've made. I don't know how I made 75 albums, but I did. And the very first one is this one. This one. And I have it here on the piano. This one. And this is 1965. And I went to Los Angeles to play at the Playboy Club, Sunset Boulevard. When Hugh Hefner also decided to open up more clubs around America, he opened one in Los Angeles. Because I, I played at the LA, New York Club. So this is, they call it Alexander the Great, excuse me. And on the back of it, compliments from Quincy Jones. Mr. Sinatra said, the kid is a gas. And that's a lot of pressure. Because every time you get at the piano, you got to do some gas. You know what I mean? So now I'd like to say, it is a gas, okay. So, I'm playing at the Playboy Club when the owner of the record company who introduced him to me, uh, his, my, my talent, whatever it was, Mr. Richard Bach. And this is quite a story. This story is about Indian music. I had just been playing recently at Shelley's Manhole. You know what? I'm tricking up the, the years, mixing them up. But I had seen Ravi Shankar, the great classical sitar player from India, a beautiful human being who was a big influence on so many musicians. And um, one night, Richard Bach, the owner of World Pacific Jazz, came into the Playboy. That photo is at the Playboy Club, and the bass player and the drummer, and I'm up there doing what I'm supposed to do, which is keep it swinging, right? And um, Mr. Bach came in with his friend, 
Who was his friend? Ravi Shankar. So I was delighted. This gentle human being who speaks softly and is from India. I went to the table after the music and I saw, hey, hello Mr. Bach, how are you? So, hey kid, you doing sounding good? Yeah, thank you. I want you to meet Mr. Ravi Shankar. And I met Ravi Shankar and um, a gracious man and he said to me, um, thank you, I like what you play and very, I was feeling happy about that, of course. And I started to talk with him about things in common. India being a part of the British Commonwealth, like Jamaica. And we started to talk about cricket, and we started to talk about music and such and such. And during the conversation, I said something stupid, right? I said, uh, Mr. Ravi, do you like jazz? <laughs> he said, yes, I like jazz. It's a nice music and so on and so forth. And I uh, took a breath and I said, uh, you know this music? You know, he said, yes. He said, have you heard, he says to me, have you heard of John Coltrane? I said, of course, John Coltrane is one of the great composers, great players of this music, a real innovator, a whole new way of playing music. He is the most, blah, 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 I'm going on about John Coltrane. He says, well, Mr. Coltrane, he comes to my house for lessons. I said, what? The point of this is to tell you something that I never read in any book or heard about. John Coltrane took took it upon himself to seek the music, the spirit of India. Because John Coltrane had gone through all kinds of terrible things in his life and he found a spiritual answer to all the pain and suffering. And he knew that Ravi Shankar was indeed a, a proponent of such an outlook on music, right? And he started to go for the ragas and the spiritual music of India. And um, he... He was delivered from his suffering and problems because there was substance abuse there too with so many other great musicians, you know. So I met Ravi Shankar again a few years later. We were flying up to Aspen, Colorado from Denver and it was a little plane, maybe a Piper Cup, something like that. could only seat about six people and I was by myself and I got on the plane and there was Mr. Ravi Shankar and his two other musicians and I went to see him perform in the music tent in Aspen. This is 19... 69 I think and I saw the light meaning I heard the music and it, it knocked me over because I saw I didn't understand it but I saw so much of why this music has such power you know and to this day we've had people in the what we call jazz world you know John McLaughlin and you know uh, Mahabishnu Orchestra who have embraced a lot of those uh, attitudes and scales and everything about the music so Mr. Ravi Shankar this beautiful human being. In fact, um, I heard that the singer Nora Jones is stepdaughter or something of that nature. But Ravi Shankar, what, a, what, a, what an experience. So I ran out of stories just then. I told you about the British in Jamaica, the Jamaican independence, telling you about Ravi Shankar, I'm telling you about Miami, the problems there, and I'm going to uh, tell you now about. Uh, you? You about how, about, how about Johnny Hartman? Oh my goodness. Johnny Hartman, who recorded the John Coltrane, nice man that he was, and I remember he always wore these plaid jackets, man. The guy was, every time I saw him, he had a different, it was yellow, it was green, it was plaid, it was a fashionable thing. This is late 60s. I was in California, maybe around that same time when I met Ravi Shankar, and I was asked to go to San Diego and end up, I'm going to accompany Johnny Hartman. What, a, what an honor. So I had a group of players, I think Victor Sproles was playing the bass, not remembering the drummer. And um, 
Johnny's this beautiful baritone, amazing tone. I mean, I, I, when it came to singers, I loved those guys with the voice that was just so robust, you know, Nat King Cole, Billy Eckstein, uh, Herb Jeffries, uh, but now Johnny Hartman. And I'm playing the set, we're having a ball, and someone in the middle of the set, he says, all right, we're going to do a song called Lush Life. Lush Life, the great classic by Billy Strayhorn. Man, I never heard about a song called Lush Life. I didn't even know what it was. What's that? You know? And it was one of those defining moments. How do you handle it on the bandstand? Because Johnny, he wasn't very kind because he wanted to do his Lush Life. And he, and he said, man, you don't know Lush Life? And I started to do like this on the piano because the people are looking at me like I'm causing a, a problem. And I said, no, no, I don't know Lush Life. What's that? It's, Quite a song. Now you know it. Now I know it. <laughs> and, you, and I would see Johnny from time to time. It was wonderful. Met his family. And nice to know that man. And um, that was an embarrassing moment. It reminded me of back in Jamaica when I had one of my first jobs. And the bass player didn't show up. And I got frustrated. And I didn't know what to do. And I, I, and I ended up going home crying. Crying is sometimes the best thing you can do. Because it, it gives you a fresh start. You cry. You get over it. Hopefully, and then you have a, an awakening the following morning, and you say, let me go again. And that's what some of us have to do and be as we go along. And that's been part of my discipline, if you will. So, I could tell you about experiences. If there's any way to get over here, and I'll show you my various heroes. I had the honor of playing for West Montgomery, who invited me to work with him, but I had a previous booking because I knew the pianist who was playing with him, a man whose family was from Jamaica, Mr. Winton Kelly. And that's Winton Kelly who, Ellis Marsalis, who just left us, we lament his passing, the father of Winton Marsalis. As I understand it, uh, Ellis Marsalis was a, was a real appreciator of Winton Kelly and named his son Winton Marsalis. So, Winton was this delightful guy that when he played, every note was, a, was a, a bounce, we call it. He was swinging. And between him, the Jamaican, between, and I'm going to mention another name, larger than life, big gentleman, walked on the stage, he owned it, he owned the piano, and he started to play. It's like he ate up the piano with Mr. Oscar Peterson, a man who's had West Indian heritage. And I got to know Oscar. And... Um, he befriended me, and uh, once he said to me, young man, <laughs> it was like that, young man, I've noticed that you've been goofing around a lot, and you should be really trying to be serious about the music. I said, yes, Oscar, <laughs> what do I do? I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying life, you know, I'm going here, because Ray Brown said, Oscar, talk to this kid. Tell him to get serious, because Ray saw me just having fun with life, goofing around and, you know, seeking out the young ladies, yes, why not, right? And um, Oscar... We met to play the piano, and the session of playing the piano was actually turned out into two people just sitting there making music. And I never got taught, so to speak, because my, my learning coming from observing people, if you teach me, I'm not going to even get it. And it ended up where Oscar says, show me that again. I showed him, I played that, and then later on he recorded because he had not known the song. So... It wasn't so much a teaching session. I just sat there and spent time with this awesome musician, gentle, kind man. And he looked like he was going to knock you out in two seconds because he was so big and strong, you know? And uh, we had a, a nice rapport. And 
he actually hooked me up with his record company and I made about 10 albums for the MPS record label. And that was another, you know, uh, was about boost to my adventures of music. But it started with me telling you about Wes Montgomery. But here is the great, great piano player, hero of mine from the first. I saw him, Nat King Cole. People didn't know that Nat was this great pianist. Well, he inspired Oscar. He inspired so many people. I'm going to show you now the man who is not a musician only. He's a magician. Because what he does is like nothing on earth, right? And in terms of my life and influence, the essence of this human being is is coming from another world. And it's not just about what he does and how he does it, it's a deep essence. His name is Mr. Ahmad Jamal, a man who I truly love for what he represents. He's other than, not like under the sun like Mr. Jamal, okay? And I'm pleased to have the friendship of him. He's from Pittsburgh, PA, and he blazed the trail of you know, made this gentleman have a career, in my opinion, none other than Miles Davis. Miles was inspired by this man. And in fact, Miles heard me playing the piano way back in 1964, and he invited me to come to his home. And Miles, I never told anybody this, literally said to me, uh, he said, what you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to make an album next week. And I say this now very thoughtfully because it will sound like, why would you tell a lie? It's no lie. Miles said to me, let me produce it. Let me produce it. I didn't know what producing was. And to be honest with you, as the great musician that Miles Davis was, I was scared of him. Because, what's he thinking? I couldn't figure out where he was coming from, you know? Because that's part of what makes a musician so amazing, is a mystery. Miles was a mystery. You know, what's he going to do next? Where is he coming from? What's that note? He came into Jilly's one night when I was playing there, and he sat at the piano bar, he kept coming in, I was, I was honored, right? I sat there at the piano and said, Manny, I said, Miles, he said, do me a favor. I said, yes. He said, play A flat and B flat in your left hand. I said, yeah, this is, this is a fact. He said, like this, play A flat and B flat below middle C. I guess it was here, right? And then in your right hand, play A flat and B flat. I said, like, like this, man sitting over there, right? Okay, I do this. Right? I looked over, and when I did that, man said, <laughs> I said, this guy is crazy. I mean, what was that about? But here, the point I'm making is, he was, he was like Picasso, or like um, uh, Salvador Dali. He's coming from another place. And what he's doing, he, he would do it for a while, and people would be astounded, and then, guess what? Miles get, I say, bored. Yeah, he get bored because he was a man always on a journey, you know? And I was around him during the time he had the great, great quintet, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, uh, Ron Carter, and Tony Williams, who came to play drums with me at Jitters. So I had Tony there, and we got to know each other. And um, I could go on a lot about Miles. He invited me to come in and to the vanguard when he was playing and he invited me to, to join him on the bandstand. I would, but, but musically around him, I was kind of, what do I do? So I never took, up, took that advantage, folks, and um, I made an album. It came out Zing, and it was okay, and, and some people like it, and I, I, that, that, when I see Zing, where's Zing? 
I, I got me a zing yet. up here somewhere. Where's my zing? It's not yeah, there it There's is. zing. I'm trying to be oh, James no. Bond. Look at that. I got these two lovely ladies that must have been models, and I was going to hopefully meet this girl and, and say, let's go have tea or something. She, she ran away from the session, but there's me in my tuxedo and my blue bow tie, and there's the piano. Zing. Could have been Miles Davis producing whatever. So, one more anecdote to forget about, or hopefully remember. Yes? What's next? The cuckoo ran. The cuckoo ran. 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 The cuckoo sang. Yep, and the cuckoo guy been talking a lot, and all I can say is, um, be well, be careful. This was installment number seven, the Monty telling stories. Whole lot more. And I'm going to close by saying um, hello to my friend, this man who I talk to occasionally, and he's one of the great human beings I've known. Put, a, put aside the most incredible saxophone player, period, Mr. Sonny Rollins, a beautiful human being, a spirit of great heights and love. And I, I treasure my friendship with Mr. Sonny Rollins. And I could go on and on. I want to let you know, coming up soon, I'm going to be speaking on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, about jazz in the movies. All the films I saw, including Man with the Golden Arm, where Sinatra was a drummer and struggling with heroin, and Five Pennies, Danny Kay, and Shelley Mann played both those movies, both Man with the Golden Arm and uh, the, the Five Pennies, Red Nichols and the Five Pennies, and there's uh, Jazz on a Summer's Day, which shows a concert in, I think, 1958 at Newport, our beloved George Ween, he was starting up the whole jazz festival concept at the time, still going strong, believe it or not. And um, all these movies that came out, you know, where Duke Ellington wrote Anatomy of a Murder, the music, and uh, I watched it last night, Odds Against Tomorrow, with the great Harry Belafonte, music by John Lewis, who had that, was a part of the group, the Modern Jazz Quartet, which included my dear friend, Mitt Jackson, and uh, we made a lot of records together. And John was such a studious gentleman. Every note he played was a, was a beautiful jewel on the piano. And I could go on for a long time, and I want to say to you...